Good afternoon, and welcome once again to the Security Seminar. Uh, this week, uh, we're really lucky to have our speaker this week. I could easily spend a good portion of his talk telling you about him, uh, but if you want to find out about Ed, all you have to do is look online, use Google or Bing or one of the search engines, and you'll find lots about him. Um, I've known Ed for almost 20 years. He joined uh, the faculty at Princeton uh, 20 years ago this year and has worked in a variety of areas that touch on our interests. He's worked in uh, Java security. He has worked in cryptographic security of various kinds. He served as a special master in the antitrust uh, uh, suit against Microsoft. Uh, he has uh, uh, worked as chief scientist at the Federal Trade Commission. He's a fellow of the ACM. He's vice chair of uh, ACM's Public Policy Council. Lots of other stuff in there, as well as running an institute at Princeton. Today, he's going to tell us some about NSA and about uh, various issues with the data program. And so, please join me in welcoming Professor Ed Felton. Thanks. Thanks. So, what I'd like to do today is try to um, apply some computer science to issues, some issues raised by the NSA's uh, mass phone call data program. Um, the, this program first um, uh, was, was first confirmed by um, a story in The Guardian about the NSA collecting phone records of millions of Verizon customers daily. That's the headline. Um, but it was later acknowledged by the intelligence community that they were collecting similar information from uh, several different phone companies. And so what I'd like to do today basically is talk about uh, where we are and how we got here, a little bit of history as well as recounting what we know about this program and how it operates. Um, I wanted, I'll do some analysis uh, based on, um, on Bayesian reasoning and, um, and random graph models to, uh, to uh, ask how useful is a program like this in the search for bad guys? How useful is it in either confirming or ruling out um, that a particular person uh, might be a, 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 an adversary. Um, I'll look a we'll, we'll talk then um, from a privacy and algorithm standpoint about some issues uh, on how you might be able to make a program like this more privacy friendly while still functioning effectively. Um, and then I'll offer some concluding thoughts at the end. So first I want to talk about a little bit of history. Um, there's of course a long history of surveillance in, uh, of domestic surveillance in the US. Uh, but one of the most notable um, examples, and one that I think sheds some light by comparison on the current uh, one, is, the, uh, is, uh, is uh, recounted here. This is from uh, the so-called Rockefeller Commission report. This is, dates to 1975. And this was a special um, committee that was appointed by the president and chaired by then Vice President Nelson Rockefeller to examine the domestic uh, intelligence activities of the CIA in the 1950s through the 1970s. Um, and so this talks about a CIA program that started in the 50s and went up until around 1970 that involved surveillance of postal mail, uh, primarily at the main post office in New York City. It started with the CIA um, uh, photographing the front and back covers of letters going to and from uh, the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc generally. Uh, but then it later expanded to include opening and photographing the internals of a large number of those letters, which was very clearly against the law at the time. Uh, so this is, this is an interesting bit of, um, of historical uh, framework. And the, um, one of the things I love about this report is that it's written in such a sort of just the facts um, deadpan manner. For example, it includes this sentence in discussing this program. The CIA, the record discloses, was aware of the law making mail openings illegal, but apparently considered the intelligence value of the mail operations to be paramount. In other words, the CIA decided to break the law and continued to do so for a long time. So if we compare that program against where we are now, we see, I think, two important differences. One is that the collection of information that's possible now because of the electronic means of collection allows collection to be much more extensive than it was then. Um, we're talking about, in the mail program, we're talking about uh, perhaps a few thousand letters a week. Um, with phone calls, we're talking about a much larger number. Um, but on the other side of the scale, um, comparing what we saw then to what we see now, um, in the current setting, we see a much stronger attitude of legal compliance 
um, and attempts within the intelligence community to follow rules and guidelines and to think through what the law allows, compared to this attitude that, well, um, the law says we definitely can't do this, but, you know, intelligence, um, and I, which I don't think is where we are right now. Okay, so let me move forward and talk a little bit about what we know about the current program. Um, and in particular, we're talking about the domestic uh, mass phone call data program. Uh, this is a program that involves collecting for maybe many, maybe most, domestic phone calls, uh, information about who called whom, when the call was made, and how long the call lasted. Um, this doesn't include content of calls. It doesn't include the voice conversation. Just this information about, about the call itself, um, so-called metadata. Um, and that's what um, is collected domestically under Section 215 of the Patriot Act. Um, for other, uh, in other settings, for either foreign calls, calls that happen entirely overseas, or calls that are one-end foreign, one-end domestic, um, the law allows broader collection of this, of this information. Uh, in many cases, certainly for entirely domestic, or for entirely foreign cases, um, without needing, um, without much in the way of limits, and one-end foreign is somewhat more complicated. So for one-end foreign or fully for, or both-ends foreign um, uh, calls, uh, there might be a lot more collected, but that's not the topic today. Today I want to focus on domestic collection of that metadata about calls. Of course, there is information, there is content um, collection as well that happens domestically pursuant to individualized warrants. That is, that's been going on for a long time and, again, is not the topic that I want to talk about today. Okay, so given the collection of this metadata about a large number of phone calls um, happening domestically, what does the, uh, what does the NSA do? Well, the first thing they do, we know, is that they build a data structure we'll, we'll call the call graph. The call graph has a node in the graph for each phone number, and it has an edge between two nodes if those numbers have talked to each other at all within the last five years. Right? So that's the call graph. And they build that call graph, and then they do a bunch of computations on that call graph. And we've learned from the documents and reporting that have become public um, uh, at least two of the things that they do on that call graph. Uh, the first one is contact chaining, and the second one is, well, there's something else that's there, but it's always redacted in the documents. Um, so what contact chaining means essentially is following the links to explore, starting with someone who is, uh, who is known to be a terrorist or terrorist suspect, um, and, uh, and exploring outward from that person up to, two or, say, two or three steps in the graph up to a distance of two or three. That's contact chaining. And I'll talk a lot more about how that works and what the implications are. Um, and then there's something else that's redacted. And the best guess as to what the redacted thing is, is that it is some kind of algorithm or algorithms that are designed to counter specific bits of tradecraft that adversaries are using. So if adversaries, for example, are throwing away their cell phone and getting new phones, you might have a, a mode of analysis that's designed to figure out which phone the person switched to after they switched. And you can imagine how you might do that. That's one candidate, but other sorts of things like that. I think it's aimed at specific bits of tradecraft. Okay, now there's several things to say about this, and I want to talk just a little bit about, um, about some of the things I've written thus far publicly about this program, uh, although that's not the main focus either today. First, I filed a legal declaration in one of the lawsuits about this, talking about the nature and implications of metadata collection. Uh, and second, I testified at a hearing of the Senate Judiciary Committee on the same topic. Um, so I want to talk first about this issue and about what it is, what are, what are the privacy implications of metadata to help provide some context on what's at stake on the privacy side of the scale in talking about this privacy versus security uh, trade-offs that exist within a program like this. Now one sometimes hears um, the argument that basically that it says it's only metadata. It's not a big deal to know who calls whom. Um, and it's not really very revealing. But I think if you look closely and think carefully about what is in these records and what might be revealed about individuals um, through their phone metadata, you can find that, in fact, that there's a lot of potentially very sensitive information about it. For one thing, there are potentially sensitive individual calls. If someone calls the suicide hotline at 1 a.m. and talks for 45 minutes, it's a pretty good guess what they're talking about. Um, if someone calls a series of, let's say, um, um, if, if I call... Um, uh, if I call um, a couple of cardiologists followed by a couple of, of oncologists, a couple of cancer specialists, well, you might, um, uh, you might infer something about my health. There are lots of examples of particular numbers that someone might call 
Um, someone, let's say, who works for a government agency calls the fraud, waste, and abuse line, um, or, or other sorts of examples like this. Yes? While we're here on the metadata... Uh, thank you for, for introducing. So you're talking about two types of metadata. You're talking about... Turn it, can you turn your microphone, please? I think I've turned it. Okay, great. I can't tell, but... You're so talking about two, two types of metadata. You're saying about the metadata that comes from the billing information or something that we can publicly get about who owns the phone. Or th there is another metadata which is technical metadata mm -hmm. or the signalization. So to which one right, do you right. refer or both? Well, so what we... Because, yes, so because metadata, in, yes. in me metadata in telecommunications world can mean anything except traffic channel. Yes. Right. And anything except traffic channel is anything. So there's two answers to this. Um, one answer is, what do the court orders from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that authorize this collection, what do they allow? Um, and the answer is that they're pretty broad, that they do not cover um, cell phone location data, uh. but they do cover things besides just the who called whom, when, and for how long. They include um, associating calls with the IMEI and the IMSI, which are identifiers for either the phone or the SIM card. They include certain kind of routing information, um, trunk identifiers, and so on. So that's, that's a broader it. set of that's metadata. That's what's authorized under the court order. But what the NSA is actually getting, we believe, is narrower. Um, that, um, and I'm, gonna f I'm going to assume, based on the reporting that we've had, based on statements made sometimes under oath by government officials about what they are getting, um, um, I'm going to assume that what they're getting is just the things I detailed on the earlier slide. Um, in, that is in the domestic setting under the Section 215 authority. Um, in a foreign setting, in a one-end foreign setting, there's no doubt that there's probably more information being collected. But I'm going to make that assumption here. Um, right. Because even that turns out to be fairly sensitive. That's a lot. I think that, that, that's, the, lot, that's, right? so, that's the crucial thing about... Individual, yeah. right. So individual sensitive calls, there's patterns of calls. Sometimes patterns of calls can be really, uh, can be really revealing. Um, you can um, certainly, um, and you can tell various stories in which people receive a call and then they, uh, people receive a call from, let's say, a hospital in a faraway place. I receive a call, let's say, from a hospital in the town that my parents live, on, live in and then I start calling airlines and then I start calling rental car companies and hotels in that town. You can figure out what probably happened. Um, so there's lots of examples of patterns of calls, even where one call might not be sensitive. They, uh, they combine to tell a story. And then finally, the third piece of this goes beyond uh, information about an individual and looks at kind of big data type of analysis. This is a type of analysis that uses information across the population to build predictive models and then try to make inferences about people from those predictive models. And researchers have found that you can predict things like relationship status, job status, whether someone has children, um, et cetera, et cetera, from even their general level of happiness with life um, based on um, information in their metadata. It's not that surprising anymore that a big data set that has to do with people's behavior, if analyzed in a sophisticated way, might turn out to be pretty revealing. So there's a lot that metadata might reveal, um, and therefore there's actually something significant from a privacy standpoint on that side of the scale. So there have been discussions um, after all this came to light about reform. Probably the biggest study of reform um, came from the President's um, Review Group on Intelligence and Communication Technologies. In mid-December, they issued a very long report and very substantive report that talked about all kinds of things, but including this program. And I want to focus on two things that, uh, that were in that report. One says, our review suggests that the information contributed to terrorist investigations by the use of telephony metadata was not essential to preventing attacks and could readily have been obtained in a timely manner using conventional court orders. That's one of the questions I want to look at in the analysis. Um, to what extent can we evaluate this question of what is the efficacy of this kind of analysis? And I want to look then also at their recommendation five, the fifth recommendation. We recommend that legislation should be enacted that terminates the storage of bulk telephony metadata by the government and transitions as soon as reasonably possible to a system in which such metadata is held instead either by private providers, that is the phone companies, or by a private third party, that is some sort of data custodian that would hold the data. And I want to look also, I'll look also at, um, at how that recommendation might be put into practice and how feasible different architectures might be. So both of these suggestions um, 
uh, were echoed by the president when he gave his speech on January 17th about these issues, which was in response to, um, to that panel report. So first, let's look first at the question of how useful is contact chain. Um, and so I want to set up a scenario here, which will sort of stand in for the sorts of analysis that we might do with contact chain. So here's the scenario. Imagine that an analyst has evidence that suggests that some person who we'll call Bob might be a terrorist. We don't know whether Bob's a terrorist or not, but there's some indication, some, some, some evidence that suggests, um, uh, that puts suspicion on Bob. The analyst is then going to use the call graph, and the analyst is going to determine whether Bob is in the near neighborhood in the call graph of um, somebody who I'll call known bad guy. Um, and near, there are different definitions of near neighborhood. I'll talk about what some of the options are there. Now, if yes, if Bob is in the near neighborhood of known bad guy, then this is evidence, perhaps weak evidence, but some evidence that Bob might be a terrorist. And if Bob is not in the near neighborhood of known bad guy, this is, again, perhaps weak evidence, but evidence that Bob might not be a terrorist. And so in order to evaluate this, we need to think about the structure of these graphs, and we also need to do some very simple um, Bayesian reasoning. And to do the Bayesian reasoning, I'll use a chart like this. So this depicts four possible states of the world. Um, first, on, uh, on the top, um, there are worlds in which Bob is a terrorist and in which Bob is not a terrorist. And then on the left, we have the world, this, this, the event that Bob is in the near neighborhood of known bad guy and the event that he's not. And so we'll talk about what are the probabilities that we're in these four boxes, and then we can use this to calculate some conditional probabilities, which allows us to figure out what, the an, what an analyst could infer. Okay, so let's make some assumptions about these things. Let's say the probability that Bob is a terrorist the prior probability, that is the probability based on all the evidence that's available to the analyst before they look at the call graph, we'll say that that's equal to T. We'll call that T. Now we'll say if Bob is a terrorist, there's some probability, which we'll call alpha, that he's in the near neighborhood of known bad guy. And that's going to be higher because he's a terrorist, because he might have engaged directly or indirectly in some kind of communication or coordination with known bad guy. Presumably, the bad guys are trying, to are trying to avoid creating these links, but they might do it by mistake through a failure of tradecraft. Five years is a long time to avoid calling people that you're working with, especially indirectly. Um, the third parameter here is the probability that Bob just happens to be in the neighborhood of known bad guy, even if he's not a terrorist. And this essentially, we'll say, is equal to the probability that two random people happen to be in each other's neighborhood. And we'll call this PN, the probability of being in the neighborhood, the probability that you're in the neighborhood of some randomly chosen person. Okay? So with these assumptions, we can then fill in this table symbolically. Um, and this all kind of makes sense, right? The probability we're in the left column is T. And then you multiply that by alpha. That's the probability that Bob is in the, in the neighborhood if he is a terrorist on the top and 1 minus alpha on the bottom. Similarly, on the right, if Bob's not a terrorist, which happens with probability 1 minus t, then he's in the top box with probability pn, and in the bottom box with probability 1 minus pn. All right, so let's fill in the parameters. Let's say, for example, that the probability, the prior probability Bob's a terrorist is 20% based on all the other evidence. The analyst thinks 20% chance that Bob is a terrorist. And we'll play with these parameters, move them up and down later, but let's start with these values. We'll say the probability that Bob's in the, in the neighborhood of known bad guy, if he is a terrorist, at 50%, so 50-50 <coughs> chance that they slipped up somehow and made an indirect connection. Right? Now, down in the bottom, this is the one that's interesting, the probability that, two that essentially the two random people are in the same neighborhood. So let's, in order to do that, we need to do a little bit more analysis, and I'll use a, a random graph model to do that. That is, we don't, we don't have access to the real graph. We know some things about the structure that social network or communication graphs tend to have, but we're going to do a random graph analysis to try to approximate um, how this comes out. And I'll come back later and uh, make some arguments to try to justify the use of the particular model I use. But the one that I'm going to use is a particularly simple one called the Erdos-Renyi model, which has two advantages. One is that it's relatively simple and makes the analysis easier. And the other is that it lets me display mastery of special characters in PowerPoint. Um, so in this model, there are two parameters. The graph has n nodes, uh, one for each phone number. And each, each pair of nodes is connected with probability epsilon, with an independent, uh, chosen independently. And I'll, and I'll make an assumption here about the magnitudes of these uh, objects, which will both simplify the, uh, uh, the algebraic expressions we get, and also which uh, turns out to hold in practice. Um, so 
filling in particular parameters that might be representative of a U.S. domestic call graph. We'll say that they're n nodes. There are about 500 million nodes, a few more than the number of, um, of people in the U.S. because there are more phones than people. And we'll say that each pair is connected with a small probability of 10 to the minus 6. Um, so what this means is the average degree of the graph, the average number of neighbors that a node ha has will be 500, which is a reasonable guesstimate as to how many people you talk to, how many unique numbers you talk to over a five-year period. Right? And with these assumptions, those, um, uh, those, um, uh, uh, the assumption on the bottom holds, um, those numbers are separated by a factor of about 1,000 in each case. Okay. So now let's look at, with that idea of a graph model, we can do some sort of simple analysis to figure out what's the probability that two people are in the same neighborhood. Well, if near neighborhood means the distance less than or equal to three, the so-called three hop criterion, then the probability that two random people are in each other's neighborhood is about 22%. And with that, and now if we take this and plug it in, back into our chart, we get these probabilities. That um, Bob is a terrorist 20% of the time, and that's split evenly between neighborhood and non-neighborhood. Um, and over on the right, which has 0.8 of the total probabil probability weight, we're, if we're in the right, then 22% of the time will be in the upper right, and the rest of the time will be in the lower right. Okay, so these are the probabilities we're in the various boxes under this model. So now we can then ask the things we really want to know, what an analyst really wants to know, which is this. What's the probability that Bob is a terrorist if he is in the neighborhood of known bad guy? And the answer is 36%. We started with 20% probability, and we can boost that to 36% if Bob is in the neighborhood. On the other hand, if Bob is not in the neighborhood of the terrorist, now our probability estimate that um, Bob is really a terrorist goes down to 14%. And uh, if you want to analyze what, um, if you want to analyze how much information we gain um, using entropy, uh, using an entropy measure, you gain about 0.04 bits of entropy uh, in a expected in expectation here. That's not a lot. So why is that? Well, going back to the chart, the problem, the fundamental problem, the thing that limits the usefulness of this is the amount of mass in the upper right-hand box. The upper right-hand box represents false positives, cases where Bob turned out to be in the neighborhood of known bad guy, even though he wasn't a terrorist. And that, it's the fact that this upper right box is big compared bigger than the upper left box is what keeps that um, estimate down at 36%. And so if we want to boost the sensitivity of this method, what we need to do is make the upper right-hand box smaller. And one way to do that is to shrink what we mean by near neighborhood. So if we shrink the near neighborhood down to a distance of two, the so-called two-hop criterion, now the probability that two, people are, two random people are in the same neighborhood goes from 22% down to 0.05%, much, much smaller. The chart now looks like this, and boy, we really succeeded in making that <coughs> upper right box small. Right? Now, um, we get something different. If we do that, then the probability that Bob is a terrorist, given that he's in the near neighborhood of the bad guy, is 99.6%. Um, that's enough to send, the FBI, to send an FBI van out to Bob's house. Um, the, um, on the other hand, the probability that he's a terrorist, given that he's not in the neighborhood, is now 11.1%. So we went from 20% down to 11.1%. That's not enough, really, to rule out the possibility that Bob's a terrorist. It's useful, but it's not everything. The expected entropy gain is about now 0.26 bits, which is substantially more. So one lesson here is that if we want to use contact chaining, it pays to keep the neighborhood small in order to eliminate, to reduce the number of false positives. And look what the president said in his speech. Effective immediately, we'll only pursue phone calls that are up to two steps removed from a number associated with the terrorist organization instead of the current three. Now this followed reporting that the NSA preferred to do two-hop analysis anyway. But now we have an idea as to why that might be. Okay. Um, but now, you might be uneasy about this, right? We did this contact chaining, and we found that Bob is in the near neighborhood of known bad guy, and therefore there's a 99.6% chance that Bob is a terrorist. That seems like we're ju perhaps jumping to conclusions. But it's important to recognize that we don't get to that conclusion just because Bob is in the near neighborhood. We get there because Bob is in the near neighborhood and there's a 20% prior that Bob was a terrorist. If we don't have some suspicion of Bob to start with, if, let's say, we uh, set the, pro the prior probability that he's a terrorist to one in a million, which is more like what we would think for, let's say, a typical member of the population, then the numbers look like this. Boy, that left-hand column is really small. And the probability that Bob is a terrorist if he's in the neighborhood is 0.1%. 
uh, whereas probability if he's not is uh, essentially negligible. So what this means is if we don't start with some suspicion of Bob, we can't really boost up into that high confidence that he is probably a bad guy. So um, we need to remember the role of the prior and the other information in getting us to a conclusion. And oh, by the way, the entropy gain we get here, starting with the one in a million chance that Bob is a terrorist, is, um, is minimal to say the least. Okay. So the conclusions so far that we can get from this are, uh, are really two. One is that this kind of contact chaining analysis works best if the, if the notion of near neighborhood that we're using is small, is relatively tight. It needs to be big enough that Bob and known bad guy have a, have a, have a substantial chance of stumbling into proximity to each other through bad tradecraft or, um, or, um, or because they move in the same social circles. But it needs to be small enough that the number of false positives is relatively small. The other thing we can observe is that even when this operates well, it can do a good job of confirming suspicion, but not such a great job of eliminating suspicion if, if we get a negative result. Okay. Now what about other network structures? I use this Erdos-Renyi graph, which assumes um, that there's no particular locality in the graph. We know several things about real social network graphs. Um, and, in, and particularly the phone call graph. We know, number one, that um, it tends to be a power law network. That is, that the, um, the degrees of nodes are not so uniform. They tend to be distributed with the power law. In particular, there are some nodes in the true call graph that have very high degree, uh, like, say, Comcast customer service and, Ver um, and Verizon voicemail. Um, they have very high degree. Um, but it turns out, if you think about it, that analysts want to, and we know the NSA does, um, eliminate these high degree nodes from the graph. Why? Well, because the fact that um, known bad guy and Bob both call cust Comcast customer service doesn't really tell us anything about whether, they, uh, whether Bob's a terrorist. So it, has very little, it does very little to help, but it creates an awful lot of, um, of false positives. It increases the, the, the probability of a two-hop path between any people by, by a substantial amount. And so it makes a lot of sense in, to try to keep that near neighborhood small to eliminate those nodes. And so to the extent that a power law is operating here, you're likely to see a pre-processing step that eliminates the high degree nodes and get you back closer to a more uniform degree distribution like we see. Um, the other thing that we might worry about and ought to worry about is whether the graph in fact has a form of locality as we know that social network graphs tend to do. That is, for example, if A is connected to B and A is also connected to C, it's more likely that B is connected to C, as an example. And there are certain kinds of, of networks um, called small world network models, um, such as the Watts-Strogatz model that people often use for modeling these kinds of relationships. And I didn't do that here. And the reason I didn't do it is it makes the analysis harder, number one. And number two, it turns out that the only thing that really matters about the graph is how big is the near neighborhood. The only parameter that really comes out of it is that PN, and PN is essentially equal to the number of people in your near neighborhood divided by the total number of nodes in the graph. So any graph in which the average near neighborhood size was, uh, um, was around 250,000, as it is for this graph, um, will have the same dynamics. And so we can shed light on the behavior of different kinds of networks with this kind of analysis anyway, except the algebra is harder. Um, okay, let me move on and talk about one more thing based on recent reporting from about a week ago. Um, and that is uh, reporting in several publications all at once that um, the NSA is collecting less than 30% of U.S. call data. Um, that is prior to what had previously been reported and sometimes asserted by, um, by some government folks. Um, if these stories are to be believed, then the NSA is collecting somewhere between 20 and 30% of, um, of the data meaning that there are some large carriers that they're getting data from and others that they're not. And in particular, there's believed to be a bias toward collecting more from landlines and less from mobile phones. There's all kinds of debate about why, but, but, what, but be, this, be that as it may, this will affect the efficacy of a program like this because there's a lot of data you're not getting. Okay, but we can model that. Let's suppose that each node is covered with some, covered meaning has collection, um, uh, with some probability C, which will be, we'll, which we'll take to be about 25%, um, we'll say that an, now an edge is covered, that is the fact that A called B is going to be in your data set if you collect, if A is covered or if B is covered. Because remember, the numbers, the, uh, uh, the data for 
each call is, is collected and associated with both ends. So if either end is collected, then the edge is collected. Now we can construct the covered graph. This is basically a model of what data the agency would get if they had only coverage C. Uh, and it turns out you can show that a two-hop path survives in the covered graph with, a with this probability, C times quantity 1 plus C minus C squared. Okay, so what, what does that mean? That means if, if we assume that there's a 25% um, coverage rate, which is consistent with what these stories have said, then um, a two-hop path survives in the covered graph with a probability that's a 29.7%. Um, the boost from 25 to about 30% reflects the fact that, um, that both ends are covered, and so you get extra stuff. Okay, so now we can take the model that we had before with the kind of default parameters, which, remember, looked like this, and we can now adjust it. And we're going to adjust it in two ways. First of all, we have to adjust the parameter alpha, which is the probability that Bob and known bad guy are in each other's neighborhood if Bob is a bad guy. Because although there might be a path between Bob and known bad guy, we might not collect it. Um, but we also need, so we're going to adjust that parameter alpha by multiplying it by 0.297. We're also going to adjust PN, the size of the neighborhood, to account for the fact that we only see about 30% of the neighborhood. And so if you do that, your numbers switch like this. Um, you get some movement basically from the top neighborhood um, version, uh, part of the graph down to the non-neighborhood graph. Now if we look at the results here again, we see that our 0.996 probability that we confirm our 20% suspicion that Bob is a bad guy, if we do find that he is in the neighborhood, that doesn't even change. And the reason is that the true positives got knocked down to 0.297 of what they were before, but the false positives did by the same amount. And so it comes out even. Our probability of confirming that Bob is a bad guy, if we find he's in the neighborhood, is the same. On the other hand, if we find he's not in the neighborhood, which, will, uh, which is what will usually happen, um, now we only get down to 17.5% from our initial 20. And we can see that the amount of information that we get, the expected entropy gain, goes down quite a bit because we're much more likely to be in this non-neighborhood case, which is uninformative. So limited collection doesn't make the program useless, but it, does, um, but it does reduce the information gain that you get from it. Um, but this brings us to another question which has kind of been lurking here, and that is what about the agency's direct subpoena power? Because if your notion of near neighborhood is uh, talking about a distance of two hops, and if known bad guy is a known bad guy, presumably we already have an individualized warrant to get all of his data anyway. And if we have 20% prior that Bob is a known bad guy, then we've way more than met the reasonable articulable suspicion standard we need to get a warrant from the FISA court. We can get Bob's individualized records as well. And given the records of just those two individuals, we can already determine whether there's a two-hop path between them. If, any of, if they have any neighbor in common, then there's a two-hop path. And so what that says is, it, is that we can figure out if Bob and known bad guy are neighbors um, simply by subpoenaing their individual records. Um, and in that model, if, if we're using a two-hop neighborhood, we don't, in fact, need to, um, to do this contact chaining or to collect all of this data um, in the first place. Um, and that's interesting. But there is one exception to that. And the exception to that is the case where our prior knowledge about Bob is not quite enough to meet the reasonable articulable suspicion standard. But perhaps by using contact chaining, we can get up over that standard. And that means that there's kind of a narrow band of prior probabilities, a relatively narrow band. Um, uh, where exactly it is depends on what probability value you assign to reasonable articulable suspicion. I'll leave that to the lawyers. But there is a band of, of prior probabilities in which this program actually allows you to learn something by, by a two-hop analysis that you couldn't get by direct subpoena because you don't have enough to subpoena uh, Bob's records. That won't won't be helpful, remember, if Bob is just a, a member of the public. But it might be helpful if we have a very weak hint that he might be a terrorist. So that's where I'll leave you on this question of the efficacy of contact chain. Let me now move on to the, to the second um, piece. And just to reiterate that, this is the recommendation by the President's Review Panel that the government look at moving um, the data um, of, of moving the telephony metadata out of the government where it's currently held into some private area. And the president um, uh, 
again echoed this in his January 17th speech. I've instructed the intelligence community and attorney general to develop options for a new approach that can match the capabilities and fill the gaps that the program was designed to address without the government holding this metadata itself. They'll report back to me with options before March 28th. So that study is going on within the government right now. But let's take a look ourselves at what the trade-offs are here. So the way that things work currently, I'll illustrate like this. Within the NSA, that's the whole box here, the whole slide here, you have over on the left um, the data store that stores the, the metadata. You have, in the middle, uh, uh, you have in the middle some kind of computing capability which pulls data out of that store and does analysis on it. And you have over on the right an analyst who sends authorized queries into the system and gets back the results. Okay, so one thing you can do is you can take the data and move it into a data custodian. And this is one of the approaches that has been suggested. You're going to take the data and you're going to have some third party outside the government who gets the data from all the phone companies and maintains it. And NSA will be able to pull it in, but only for doing analysis in response to authorized queries. Another thing you could do is move also the processing capability into this, um, into this data custodian so that the NSA analyst is sending queries over to the custodian. The custodian is, is doing the computation associated with these queries and sending the results back. Or another thing you could do is rather than having a single custodian leaving the data in the hands of the phone companies, the other thing that the, that the panel and the president suggested, um, and then um, and having um, computation go on perhaps both in the NSA and partly in the phone companies. And so in order to think about this, uh, we're going to be thinking about distributed algorithms for carrying out certain kinds of analysis. Okay, so what is it we want from this kind of analysis? We want to optimize for performance, obviously, for cost, for reliability, the usual things. We also want to optimize for oversight. That is, we want to optimize the design of the system so that we can understand what's happening and so it's easy to detect abuse or easy for the agency to show that there hasn't been abuse if there hasn't. So uh, we, can, we can derive some pretty easy design principles from that. One design principle is try to avoid replication of the data. The more replication of the data, that's more places where it can leak, more opportunities for abuse. Rather than replicating data, we'd like to have it in one place, all else being equal. All else being equal, we'd like to avoid aggregating the data. We'd prefer to keep it separate um, in order to reduce also the, uh, uh, the possibilities of abuse or misuse or leakage. Um, we want to think not just about storage, and all of the speeches and all of the reports by lawyers in Washington talk about storage, but we know as computer scientists that the processing is also important. We want to design for accountability along with, the, uh, along with cost, performance, and reliability, and we want to actually use sophisticated computer science when we can to try to come up with innovative ways of dealing with some of these problems. Okay, so if you look at these design principles, from the point of view of avoiding replication, avoiding aggregation, and to some extent designing for accountability, there's a lot to like with this design, where we keep the data in the hands of the phone companies. The data is now not aggregated. It's not replicated. It's in one place. It's spread out. Um, and you get some degree of accountability from the fact that the uh, accesses to the data from the phone companies um, uh, are crossing institutional boundaries. And things are more likely to be logged and trouble is more likely to be observed at institutional boundaries. So there's some advantages here, but then we have to ask the question, is it really feasible to do the kind of analysis you want with this architecture where the data is split across, the, um, across different servers? Well, so in order to answer that question, we need to look back and remember what computations are done at the call graph, which you recall are contact chaining and something redacted. Okay, so let's look at contact chaining. Contact chaining is actually pretty easy. Contact chaining, at least, is essentially a form of breadth-first search. We're doing breadth-first search to explore the graph from a particular point, and that's very easy to parallelize across different phone companies. Essentially, if you have n phone companies with, a, with two queries to each phone company for a maximum of two n total queries, you can explore the graph out to distance two uh, that, uh, by the most you know, obvious possible algorithm. So we know that contact chaining is practical in this setting. Uh, but of course, the more difficult one is this one. Um, computer scientists have a lot of trouble analyzing this particular algorithm uh, for obvious reasons, although Turing you know, made his try. Um, but, we can, but we can ask questions about what algorithms might be in this category, and we have some hints. Right? We know what kinds of things an agency might want to do. We know that whatever they're doing is feasible in, with the technology they have now, and that's actually a hint. 
because we believe that they're using a system, uh, a, a system called a cumulo, which is based on a map-reduce architecture. And so one possibility is that the, uh, is that the analysis algorithms they're using um, fit within the MapReduce map paradigm. MapReduce basically takes a set of individual data items which might be distributed, does some kind of computation in parallel across those, that's the map step, and then combines the results of those in tree-wise fashion down to get an overall result. That's the reduce step. Um, and, uh, and it's pretty well known that MapReduce style computations op can operate very efficiently in uh, a setting where the data is distributed across a set of servers. So MapReduce computations, whatever they are, if you can do them in a MapReduce architecture efficiently, then you'll be able to do them efficiently with this sort of distributed setting. And so to the extent that the unknown algorithm or algorithms is based on a MapReduce architecture, which could be the case given that we believe that NSA is storing them in a MapReduce-based system, um, that would still be efficient. But there are other examples. We might look at something like similarity search, where the idea is that we have, bad guy, we have known bad guys' um, um, we have known bad guys' data, and we want to find some other phone call, some other phone number that tends to have the same neighbors in the graph that known bad guy has. Call that similarity search. That's also something which, if you think about it, is relatively easy to parallelize across this sort of architecture. We're going to take known bad guys' information, we're going to distill it down to some kind of summary, um, and then we're going to search the individual data items separately across that sort of summary. So that's still an efficient thing to do. So there are a bunch of different algorithms you can imagine. Some of them you can do efficiently, some of them you can't. And that's the best we can do in analyzing an algorithm that we don't know what it is. So we're left with a bit of a mystery here. Although it's worth knowing, it's worth noting that it's knowable and known within the intelligence community what it is that they're doing. And so it's possible to do a, an analysis of what kinds of, of algorithms they do and might want to do in the future and to answer questions like this. And I hope that that's going on within the intelligence community. All right, I want to point to one more thing, um, and that is the question of how you can support simple warrants. There's been a bunch of interesting research on this, and this is not, um, this is not a novel uh, work from me. Uh, this is just to summarize what is known in the uh, crypto algorithms community about how to support um, a system with simple warrants. So here the model is that the phone companies are holding data, and the government is going to get a warrant for the data of a particular person. So one way to do this, in, which is going to turn out to have good properties, is to have the telecom company encrypt the database in a particular way, send the encrypted data across to the NSA. Now at step two, the court, which is going to issue a search warrant, rather than announcing what the warrant will do, will cryptographically commit to the content of the warrants, essentially cryptographically committing to the fact that they've issued a warrant for a particular number, but without publishing to the public what that number is. Now in step three, here's the crypto magic. In step three, um, you involve a cryptographic method called secure multi-party computation in which the telecom and the NSA collaborate um, to, do two, to do a bunch of things. First, to make sure that the particular phone number that the NSA is asking to look at matches up with a number in a known warrant, and that warrant is valid. And that's one of the warrants to which the court has committed. At the same time, if that's true, uh, the secure multi-party computation will calculate what is the decryption key for the requested number that was named in the warrant um, to decrypt the data about that number and then that key will get given to the NSA and all of this will be done jointly by the NSA and the phone company such that only the NSA, the only thing that comes out of it is the NSA learns the key if the number they ask for corresponds to a valid warrant. The NSA can then decrypt the record of the requested number. And this is actually pretty cool. You can use crypto, you can use computer science to get pretty much exactly the behavior you would like in terms of privacy for individuals, in terms of the NSA not having to tell other parties what numbers they're searching on, and in terms of having warrants issued and courts and the NSA be accountable for following the required legal procedures relating to a warrant. So there are things you can do, even in this simple case, that are better than what we're doing now, and there's opportunities to apply computer science. Okay. I want to shift gears now and just conclude by talking a little bit about how uh, we can try to change the debate about these issues. The debate about these sorts of issues, uh, about what government should be doing, is often cast as a discussion uh, in how to trade off security versus privacy. But in fact, there's a third factor here, which is part of the whole equation, and that's accountability. That is making sure that whatever it is that our intelligence agencies are doing on our behalf, that it's something that we would be happy to have them doing. 
to make sure that the intelligence community is accountable to the public in Congress and to make sure that that happens even though there's a legitimate need to keep some of this stuff secret. And in those lines, um, there has been some reason for concern and there's also some reason for hope. So uh, the reason for concern um, is, I think, best illustrated by this uh, article um, from uh, Christmas Day in the Washington Post by Walter Pincus. He is a national security reporter who knows, and, and I'll, I'll blow up the part that I want you to read in a minute. Um, he is a reporter who knows a lot of people and a lot of things about the intelligence community. And this was, article was his attempt to summarize certain attitudes that he saw in the intelligence community. And he starts out by asking this, should the U.S. engage in secret, covert, or clandestine activity if the American public cannot be convinced of the necessity and wisdom of such activities, should they be leaked or disclosed? To intelligence professionals, by which he means, I think, many intelligence professionals, not all, that's a bizarre question. Now, I can see how you might disagree about the answer to this question, but to me it's worrisome that some people might consider this question to be bizarre, because I think it's an important question. But going on, you see, you see this. The prime reason for secrecy is that you don't want the targets to know what you're doing. Well, I think th that's, it's pretty easy to agree with that. Um, but often in democracies, another reason is that you don't want your citizens to know what their government is doing on their behalf to keep them secure as long as it's within their country's law. And this, to me, is really troubling. The idea that information, which doesn't need to be kept secret because we don't want our adversaries to know it, would be kept from the public because the public would not approve of what's happening um, seems to me problematic. And I think if you believe this, then you have to start to question whether uh, intelligence collection and exploitation is consistent with democracy. Because it seems to me that that is the, 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 the subtext here. Now to be clear, this is not the position that Walter Pincus was putting forward, nor is it the position that everyone in the intelligence community has. But nonetheless, there is, um, there is a current of that in some of that we see in some of the debate. Um, and that, I think, is, is worrisome. On the other hand, we're seeing signs of progress. Just two days ago, James Clapper, who's the director of national intelligence, gave an interview in which he said this. He said, the problems facing the US intelligence community over its collection of phone records could have been avoided. I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. Had we been transparent about this from the outset, right after 9-11, which is the genesis of the 215 program, and said both to the American people and to their elected re representatives, we need to cover this gap, we need to make sure this never happens to us again, so here's what we're going to set up, here's how it's going to work, and why we have to do it, and here are the safeguards. If we had done that, Mr. Clapper said, we wouldn't have had the problem we had. I think that's absolutely correct, and that is a lesson that I'm glad to see people in the intelligence community learning. And if nothing else but this, comes out of this process will have gained something actually really important. This is a debate that we need to be having. Um, it's a debate that should have started soon after 9-11, and we're maybe 13 years late, but, um, but it's a debate that uh, we're now starting to have, and that is um, the hopeful tone on which I'll end. Thanks. Okay, we have a little bit of time for questions with the, uh, with the cameras running, and then I'm happy to stay afterward for, for others. Anyone? Yes, sir. Uh, just... Uh, phone uh, on, please. <clears throat> sorry. Oh, if it is, it's on. It probably is. Uh, just out of curiosity, uh, do you think that text messages are taken into account in this kind of like data collection, and to what extent in that case? Um, there's several things to say about this. One is... Um, any type of communication domestically can be captured if there's an individualized warrant. Um, and there are individualized warrants for some, probably some hundreds of people, I would guess, something like that, um, related to intelligence. Um, domestically, I mean, sorry, internationally, a lot of stuff gets captured. Um, is there a program like this phone call record um, data program for text messages? We don't know of one that's currently going on. Um, and that's, I think, all I can say about that. Um, internationally and one end foreign, um, it's very likely that there's a lot of collection going on. Um, another thing to note is with respect to text messages, there's also a distinction between metadata and content. Right? The fact that A sent a text message to B at some time um, is metadata. The contents of that are going to be, um, are going to be uh, content. Um, so the NSA and Department of Justice would argue 
that it would be lawful for them to get a warrant to allow them to collect metadata about text messages domestically. Um, but I don't know of such a warrant existing currently. I think that technically the text of the message, it's still metadata, but that's, that's a technical thing. Another thing, I have a question. What about the inbound roamers in, in the United States? I'm sorry, could you say that again? Inbound, inbound roamers. I have a, have a SIM card from T-Mobile uh, right, right. Deutschland, and I'm inbound roamer here. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Is that applicable to... This gets a little complicated. Um, yeah. So the first part, um, as to um, what is metadata and what isn't, um, lawyers have their own definition of metadata, which is different from what computer scientists have. Um, and when lawyers say metadata, they mean information about timing and routing and addressing of the message um, as distinct from content. And they look at individual, there's, there's various precedents and policies that look at individual cases, questions of like, if you're browsing the web, is the URL content or metadata? And the, they do that on a case-by-case -case basis. It's not the definition computer scientists would use. Um, inbound roamers, whether um, um, the answer is a bit complicated. Um, generally speaking, there are two classifications that matter here. I don't want to give you a detailed legal opinion because I'm not qualified and I don't know. But there are two classifications that matters. One is, is the collection done domestically or internationally? In your example, it's domestic. Um, and the other one... It does, yes. Well, so the question is whether the, whether the government would be authorized to collect it without a warrant. Right? And so the first question to ask is, is it domestic or foreign? The second question to ask is, is it a communication of a U.S. person? So whether you get this category of U.S. person, that is, are you, a, um, um, are you a citizen or permanent resident? If you are, then you're a U.S. person, um, and you get higher protection. Um, so it will depend on the circumstances. It will depend on where the collection happened. If you call an overseas number, that's at least a one-end foreign call, maybe a both-ends foreign call, depending on your exact status. Um, and, um, and this gets complicated. Um, is the short answer. And there are lengthy documents, training documents for NSA analysts, and I'm glad, you know, it can't be, it can't be that fun to have to operate under these, these training documents that lay out all these criteria for what you can and can't capture and keep and so on. Um, but but that's, that's the way the law operates. Well, thank you again. Thanks.